Welcome to the Energy Update presented by the Institute for Energy Research for the week of July 20th, 2020. I'm Alex Stevens, and I'm joined as always by IER's Deputy Director of Public Policy, Jordan McGillis. Jordan, what do we have going on this week at IER? Hi, Alex. Thank you. We've got two things worthy of discussion here on our recording. And uh, the first is the contrast between the proposed Biden $2 trillion climate plan as we emerge from this coronavirus economic recovery Contrasting that with how our systemic geopolitical and economic rival China is approaching their climb out from the uh, the economic devastation that they faced. The second piece is one of my own, uh, which was published on the 21st at the Washington Examiner, which discusses a recent flurry of climate litigation from the attorneys general of Minnesota and the District of Columbia against uh, fossil fuel companies and various related associations. Yeah, let's start with the uh, the blog post on Biden's plan in China. Sure. So what Biden is proposing is basically in line with the, the general Democratic Party push for increased public expenditure on research and um, the proliferation of wind and solar technology uh, and various associated forms of energy uh, and energy transport. Now, this would be a, a major economic shift for for the United States. It would be very costly. Um, and leaving aside even uh, our our positions on, on energy density and things like this, you can contrast that with the Chinese approach, which is really a doubling down on their their current trajectory, which involves a lot of investment in coal. Now, China is a, a prominent spender on things like solar panels and, and various other forms of renewable technology. Um, and of course, China has enormous hydroelectric infrastructure. But they also are building more coal plants and more coal-fired generation than we currently have in the United States. And China intends, based on its nationally determined contribution to the Paris Agreement, to continue growing its fossil fuel economy and increasing its emissions until at least 2030. And that's something that is going to be an asset for them as as we progress through this decade and, and the global economy attempts to climb out of this coronavirus recession. The Biden plan, in contrast, is, is going to shift the United States in this moment of crisis from our tried and true technologies to these much costlier and as of yet less effective technologies. And there's a, there's a real contrast there in how we would approach this recovery. Yeah, the uh, the Biden plan seems to rely on the old sort of political myth that the point of an economy or the best way to get out of um, or to recover an economy is to create jobs when mm-hmm. in reality the point of an economy is to produce things that people want at mm-hmm. the lowest cost possible. And uh, yeah, the blog does a good job of just pointing out that changing the energy portfolio of the nation requires changing uh, the allocation of sort of labor and capital and all these things that come with costs in terms opportunity costs in terms of other things that they could be allocated to. Uh, you make an you make an excellent point there about this fixation with job creation and then the overlooking of the opportunity cost of that. For every worker that has a job installing solar panels, that's somebody who isn't doing something that's probably creating more energy per 
per hour worked in some other field. Yeah, that's right. And just in terms of people who are getting their education and stuff right now, if you're directing people, especially people pursuing STEM careers into energy production or uh, renewable energy and away from maybe uh, medical fields or something, there are real trade-offs that exist in terms of the way that people are planning their careers and things. So Absolutely. In the, in the big picture, that is so, so crucial to to keep in mind, the more capital and, and human capital that we invest into this coerced energy transition, the less we the less we have for all other realms of human discovery and endeavor. That's right. Yeah. Why don't we talk about your your piece in the Washington Examiner that was uh, released this morning? Uh, you want to just give an overview of sort of what you discussed there? Sure. That is on a completely different topic than this coronavirus recovery. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, the issue we've got going on with climate litigation right now is a real shift in the strategy of the interested parties that are attempting to use litigation as a means of pursuing their preferred climate policy. What we've seen in the past is suits from municipalities and counties against, we'll just use a broad umbrella term here, we'll just say fossil fuel interests for the purpose of this conversation. They've been suing fossil fuel interests for the alleged future damages initiated by the burning of fossil fuels precipitated through the the carbon cycle and um, things like sea level rise. But what we've seen is a shift away from that and to an approach in which attorneys general, and in particular this is in Minnesota and the District of Columbia, are suing fossil fuel interests for fraud so this is not a damages case. They're not saying you've done something that is causing a physical change to the municipality, to the state, to someone's property. They're saying you have deceived consumers by selling them your product uh, under the false auspices of, essentially they're saying you're downplaying the effects of your products and you're selling them to people deceitfully. And so what this really is, this is a an attack on the ability of companies, but also nonprofit organizations um, and trade organizations, the ability of those entities to engage in discussion and debate of their own products. Essentially, these attorneys general, Carl Racine in D.C. and Keith Ellison in, uh, in Minnesota, are saying that if you are selling a product, you're not allowed to talk about that product or have any engagement in issues that may surround it. And I think that's absolutely an infringement on on free inquiry in this country. And there's a real risk of it threatening our First Amendment rights. If a company cannot fully participate in the public discourse over its own product, you're going to face some some real challenges uh, in terms of just broader freedom of speech. And then what makes this particularly interesting here is that both of these attorneys general offices again, in Minnesota and District of Columbia, have special assistance to the attorneys general that basically were recruited and hired from a private entity, an entity at the uh, at New York University that's called the State Impact Center, and they were placed into these attorneys general offices. Now, the State Impact Center is an outlet that is explicitly for using any means possible to alter our, our climate policy and alter our energy trajectory in this country. And much of its funding comes from Bloomberg Philanthropies. So this ties into our project at the Institute for Energy Research, 
known as Big Green Inc. The Bloomberg Family Foundation and Bloomberg Philanthropies uh, are some of the biggest players in environmental funding. And essentially what's happening is they have set up a center at New York University, um, which is then placing these um, special assistants in different attorneys general offices for the explicit purpose of pursuing cases like these climate litigation cases. Um, and if you follow the, the documentation, which Chris Horner has done extensively at uh, Climate Litigation Watch, you can see that it's very open. The attorneys general wrote applications to the State Impact Center and said, we'd like to have a candidate who is uh, capable of pursuing these sorts of things. And, and they've done that. It's interesting that they would allege. Just two things on this. Uh, first, just a quick question. Um, you alluded to, in the past, a lot of the litigation that's gone on has made arguments about uh, nuisances. Um, the shift away from that, what has the track record been in terms of those court cases and outcomes? Are they moving away from that because they haven't been successful, or is it just a new strategy, or what do you think there? I don't think we've seen the end of nuisance cases by any means. We'll, we'll continue to see that employed uh, across the country, I believe, but they haven't yet been successful and uh, particularly counties in, in California and in Colorado have basically been stymied by, and this is getting into the real nitty gritty, a bit beyond my expertise on this issue, but there's uncertainty about which level of the court system would be responsible for adjudicating these concerns, whether this can be done through federal court, through state court, whatever it may be. It's very complicated and they haven't yet had success in uh, in those pursuits. So we're seeing this other track, but I don't, I certainly don't think it's the end of the, the nuisance claims. Those will continue well into the future, I believe. And something that your article does a good job of pointing out, I think, is just the fact that these fraud cases do, in some ways, serve to punish unpopular political speech. You know, it's a lot easier to punish political speech when you're doing it under the guise of sort of thwarting an evil plot by fossil fuel companies um, rather than just coming right out and uh, saying uh, we're uncomfortable with the ideas that you guys have about uh, energy and environmental policy. Mm -hmm. This is this is not a an uncommon strategy. And, and you see this in different regimes across the world uh, where the party in power is able to target dissidents. I don't want to make this sound too dramatic. This isn't an extreme authoritarian repression by any means. But this is this hints at a common strategy, which is to castigate and brand political opponents as criminals. And by labeling it as fraud, I really think that that's what Keith Ellison and Carl Racine are are getting at. They want to portray the companies and then the the trade associations as well as being really nefarious and concocting schemes to deceive, so that the public turns against them and views them as nefarious actors. You see this in regimes across across the globe, and it unfortunately does sometimes have success because people are uh, subconsciously influenced by by the things that, that they may read about cases like this, and, and they have trust in the institutions that we have, and the attorney general office is one that um, people would think is above political dispute, but uh, we're seeing that that isn't the case. Yeah, no doubt. At the very least, you could say that it serves to chill political speech. I think that's all we have for this week. So thank you, Jordan. Those articles and more work from IER's staff can be found at our website, instituteforenergyresearch.org. Thank you for listening. Until next week, I'm Alex Stevens.